The following lecture was recorded in a classroom-like setting in which only the lecture was recorded. Because of this, the participation of the classroom cannot be heard. When someone asks a question or makes a comment, there will be a brief break in the audio. Once the question or comment is finished, the lecturer will begin speaking again. Thank you for understanding, and we hope you enjoy the message. Father, we thank you for this evening, for another day of life. And we thank you for gathering us together here as a body to learn how to better defend the faith which we already have and which we already know to be true. We pray, Lord, that you would glorify yourself in making us successful in that end. Cause us even tonight to uh, be able to give better reasons for what we believe. And we pray that these reasons would not only strengthen us in our faith, increase our confidence in the truth claims of your word and of your gospel, but that uh, this time would also enable us uh, and equip us to better, uh, to better demonstrate the truthfulness of your gospel to those who don't know, who don't know you yet, who don't believe it's true yet. We pray that you would do this for your glory. We pray that you would do it out of your love for us. And we pray that you would do it out of your love for all those in our lives who still don't know you. Help us to be attentive and focused and engaged. Uh, help me to teach this clearly and simply. And be pleased, Father, to truly grow us in our ability and our skill set um, during this time as, uh, as apologists um, in our ability to, uh, to give reasons for what we believe well. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, it's good to see you all tonight. I hope you're doing well. hope you're doing well physically. hope you're doing well spiritually. This is our third session of the new series we started on Proving Christianity. Uh, and today we're actually going to get into the apologetic portion, uh, which is very exciting. I'm very much looking forward uh, to it tonight. Um, what we've learned thus far has been more for ourselves. And what I mean by that is in the first session, we talked about what faith is, what reason is, how those two things go together. Um, we talked about what apologetics is and why it's useful, the benefits of it. Um, and then last time, we learned some of the tools that we have for doing apologetics. When we give reasons for what we believe, those reasons oftentimes come in the form of arguments. And we talked about not only uh, how logical arguments work, but what makes for a good argument. Now, most of that is primarily for you. You're not really going to be sharing those things with unbelievers oftentimes. Uh, there are exceptions to that. Perhaps you may explain to somebody after giving them reasons uh, for the faith. You might explain to them that these aren't the ultimate uh, reason for why you know that Christianity is true. You know Christianity is true because you actually know Christ, right? So maybe you can share that. Or perhaps if you share an argument with someone and they, they agree with you on the premises but don't agree with the conclusion, you can explain to them if it's a deductive argument that this conclusion necessarily falls from the premises. So not all of this stuff is, is uh, just for you. Some of it is, is helpful as well in your engagement and dialogue with unbelievers. Um, but, most, but the main reason why we cover these things is because these are really important foundations for us as we move forward. And we're going to continue to build on some of these foundations that we laid in the past couple sessions. Um, again, the reason why we're doing this is not so just you can become more familiar with apologetics. We want you to walk out of this uh, training series with a skill set. And that skill set is to be able to prove that Christianity is true without recourse to any notes or any other resources. Okay, that's the goal. Um, and so with that goal in mind, we're going to play a game in just a second. Uh, it'll be a game that gives you the chance to quiz yourself on, uh, on what you've learned so far. Uh, but before we do that, I want to touch briefly again on something that we had some confusion about last time. I want to revisit uh, very quickly the issues of soundness and validity. Um, after our session la last time, I, uh, I thought of a better way that I might be able to explain this and hopefully make it a little bit more clear uh, than, uh, than I did in the last meeting. So if you'll recall in our last meeting, we talked about arguments. We talked about deductive arguments and inductive arguments. Again, if you look at your sheet, do you guys all have your sheet from last time? 
Okay, yeah, you'll want to pull out your sheet from last time. Um, an argument we defined um, as a set of propositions, an argument is where multiple propositions or statements or ideas logically work together to support a conclusion. And when I use the word logic, I'm specifically referring to how some statements or ideas infer or entail other statements or ideas. And we talked about two different types of logical arguments, two different ways that some statements can work together to support other statements. We talked about deductive arguments, which is where the statements, the premises, uh, decrease in size going towards the conclusion, so the premises are more general and the conclusion is more specific. And we talked about inductive arguments, which is where the premises are more specific and the conclusion is more general. So the size of the statements increases as you move from the premises to the conclusion. Now the reason why it's important to be able to tell the difference between these is because in a deductive argument, the conclusion is decisive, right? Deductive, decrease in size, the conclusion is decisive. It's 100% certain. If everything is right in this type of argument, the conclusion is necessarily true. Okay, not so for inductive arguments. Everything can be right, and the conclusion will always be only a matter of probability. It will always be indecisive. It can be very, very close to certain, virtually certain, but never 100% certain. Inductive arguments increase in size as you move from premises to conclusion, and the conclusion is indecisive. Okay, always a matter of probability. So, very important difference because in a deductive argument, the conclusion we can have absolute certainty about if the statements leading up to it, if the premises leading up to it are true. Now, what does it take for a deductive argument to work? This is where there was some confusion last time. We talked about three things. It must be valid, it must be sound, and it must be persuasive. Good arguments, specifically good deductive arguments, must be valid, sound, and persuasive. All right. Here's where I think there was some confusion last time. When I use the word valid, I'm using it in a technical sense. So sometimes people will refer to an argument as being valid, and uh, for them, in a kind of colloquial usage, general usage, it's just another way of saying the argument's true, or the argument's good. You're free to use the word however you want, um, but when, when I'm using it in here, I'm using it in a very specific, very technical, philosophical sense of the word. And what I mean by valid is that the conclusion follows from the premises. So here's how I'm going to try to explain it tonight before we move on to, to something new. Okay, so we have, this, we have this argument here that I gave last time as a, an, ex an example. I'm gonna erase these. Hopefully you filled in everything on your sheet already and you don't need that. This is recorded too, so you can go back and watch it if you missed something there. So this example argument I gave is actually part of an argument which we're going to learn next week for the, not next week, next session, two weeks from now, for the existence of God, okay? So if good arguments must be valid, sound, and persuasive, here's the questions that we're going to be asking of this argument. Just to review the argument again, the first premise is that the universe was started by either something or nothing. The second premise is that it wasn't started by nothing, and so the conclusion is that, therefore, it must have been started by something, Right? So, if an argument is valid, the question is going to be, does this part plus this part, you can write this down on yours too, 
equal this part. Does this part plus this part equal this part? So the question of validity is do these parts add up to this? Do these pieces logically add up to this conclusion? Even if the pieces aren't true, do they add up to this conclusion? Okay? That's the question of validity. The question of soundness is different. If we ask, is the argument, we're we're, uh, is the argument that we're considering here sound, the question is going to be, is this part true? Yeah. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> well, red's my favorite color, so I don't know what I'm going to do about that. All right. For those of you on the live stream who can't see it, the question here for validity is, does this part plus this part equal this part? The question for soundness, on the other hand, is, is this part true? And is this part true? That's the question of soundness. So we're asking, is an argument sound? We're asking, are the premises true? That's a different question from asking, is the argument valid? Validity, validity simply refers to the fact that the conclusion follows from the premises, that these add up to this. doesn't matter whether these parts are true. I think I might have shared this last time. One of the reasons why this is an important distinction is because there are valid arguments for the non-existence of God. And we're going to talk about one of the most common ones today. They're valid in the sense that the conclusion logically falls from the premises. The problem is that the premises aren't sound. They're not true. So the argument doesn't work. I'll give you an example, probably the most common argument. We'll talk about this later in the course um, for, 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 uh, um, for the conclusion that God does not exist. Is that if God, an all-powerful and all-good God existed, there would be no evil in the world. But there is evil in the world... Therefore, an all-powerful, all-good God does not exist. Right? That's a valid argument. The conclusion follows from the premises. That part plus that part equals that part. The problem with the argument is that the, that the premises aren't sound. Those parts aren't true. The second premise is true. There is evil in the world. The problem is that that first premise, that if an all-good, all-powerful God existed, there would be no evil, is false. There's nothing that would uh, indicate to us that a good God wouldn't allow evil. In fact, the Bible actually says the exact opposite. It says that God is good, he is all-powerful, um, but that he not only allows evil, he's actually in control of evil. And evil is part of his sovereign plan. It's part of the plan that ultimately brings the most glory to God. So no reason to think that a good God wouldn't allow evil. So the problem is one of soundness, not one of validity. All right, and lastly, persuasiveness. Is the argument persuasive? Persuasiveness is a different question. It's asking, do the people that we're trying to convince believe this part and this part? An argument can be valid and it can be sound, but if the people that we're trying to convince by the argument don't believe the premises, they don't already agree with the premises, 
then it's not going to be a very effective argument for them, right? So I think I may have shared an example last time. An argument that works in Christian circles when we're talking about the doctrine of inerrancy is that um, if the Bible is God's word, then it must be inerrant. The Bible is God's word, therefore it's inerrant. That works for Christians because we agree with those premises. If you share that argument with a Muslim or with an atheist, it's not going to be very persuasive for them because they don't believe that the Bible is God's word, right? So persuasiveness asks, do they believe this part and do they believe this part? All right, hopefully that helped clear up the confusion a little bit from last time. Before we move on to something new, or actually before we play a fun review game together, does anybody have any questions on what makes for a good argument? Any questions on the difference between validity, soundness, and persuasiveness? Speak now or forever hold your peace. It's the last time. We're good? Very good. All right. Turn your, practice sheet, or turn your sheet down. We're going to practice together. What we're going to do is we're going to play a game just like we played last time. So if you have your phones, you can go ahead and take your phones out. This game is called the Rite of Passage. It's called the Rite of Passage because you need to pass this test in order to move on into the course and enter the Academy of Apologetics and begin your Jedi training. If you do not pass this, you have to go back to the beginning, or actually, you'll have to come back next year when we do this course again and start all over and uh, go home and work on it more. All right, so, Brian, you can click classic mode. Uh, for those of you who are uh, watching this on the live stream, you're going to go to Kahoot, uh, www.kahoot.it, and the game pin is 748 Oh, thank you guys. Sorry about that. That's 7482523. Somebody wasn't able to get it last time, so I'll say it again. One other thing, too. Oh, sorry. I already see you're on there. I would highly recommend, like last time, using a pseudonym. Use a fake name. Pick your favorite superhero. Pick your favorite Bible character. Pick somebody that you want to be, but I would recommend not putting your name up there just in case your name ends up being on the lower end of the, of the score list. So... <laughs> All right, there we go. Again, the game pin is 7482523. All right, you must pass through this gate to begin your training with the weapons for defending the faith. So no pressure. But if you don't pass this, I'll show you the door. All right, so this uh, particular game has questions that cover some of the things we learned in the first session. And I have also included the, some of the exact same questions that we struggled with from the last session. So this will be a chance for you to redeem yourself if you struggled with the last session or to solidify what you learned if you did a good job in the last session. All right, we got 12 people in there. Looks like it's still counting. And for, if you're interested, many of the examples that I got for argument types or argument problems came from uh, yourdictionary.com, examples.yourdictionary.com. You can go and find more examples like this if you want to test yourself more. Um, those questions either 
took from there, adapted it from there. They're very helpful for us as we try to work through, as we try to uh, apply some of this knowledge together. All right, I think that's as many names as we're going to get. Let's go ahead and start. All right, the rite of passage, here we go. Question number one, biblical faith is blank and blank. Don't look at your sheet. It should be, oh. I'll read the answers next time. Okay, most of you got it right. Biblical faith is trust in God and his word. All right, very good. Unknown is at the top. All right, biblical faith consists of red, a hairy dog, blue, a furry cat, yellow, a biting goat, green, none of the above. The most points go to getting the right answer, but the faster you guess it, the more points you'll get. Yes, a furry cat. Good job. The acronym stuck, at least for 12 of you, however many there were. All right, question three. Faith consists of a furry cat. C-A-T stands for confidence, agreement, trust. Red, blue, comprehension, assent, truth. Yellow, comprehension, agreement, trust. Green, confidence, assent, trust. All right, so most of you got that too. Very good. Comprehension. You have to comprehend the content of the faith. You have to mentally agree with that, with those truth claims. Then you put trust, personal trust, leaning in, depending on Christ. Very good. All right, unknown is still at the top, but Legolas is close behind. Next. So reason refers to the mental powers to form conclusions, judgments, and inferences, or mental powers to believe the truth made known in God's word and creation. One of these definitions comes from dictionary.com. The other does not. Hint at which one comes from the dictionary. (laughs) All right. Mental powers to form conclusions, judgments, and inferences. Yes, reason certainly is useful for us as we come to understand that God's word is true, as we come to know truth about God through creation, but the word itself refers to our mental powers to, uh, to form conclusions and things like that, regardless of whether it's about theological things or not. Next. All right, Legolas takes the lead. Very good. All right, reason is one of the tools God has given us to blank and blank truth. Red, discover and decide. Blue, discern, discover. Yellow, decide, discern. And green, decide, define. All right, discern and discover. Very good. Helps us uncover new truths and sort through different truth claims, which ones are true, which ones are false. All right. A reason is a blank for a blank. Red, justification for truth. Blue, belief for a truth claim. Yellow, reason for a belief. Green, justification for a belief.
Good job. Yeah, most of you are getting, are doing, a, are doing a great job, and the others might have to go back to the beginning. No, I'm just kidding. Reason can help us move ourselves and others from blank to blank. Comprehension to agreement, red. Agreement to trust, blue. Comprehension to trust, yellow. Or confidence to certainty, green. Is my reading it out loud confusing? Is it better if I don't read it out loud? It helps? Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so comprehension agreement. So remember when we talked about the three ingredients of faith, comprehension, agreement, and trust, reason, represented by the B for brain, comes in between A and C. It comes in between our agreement and our comprehension. In other words, reason should help move us and it should help move unbelievers from understanding certain truth claims to actually agreeing with those truth claims. All right, next. Good job. Kip's taking third place. Very good. All right, knowledge is a blank, blank, blank. Justified true belief, justified rational belief, true sound belief, that's yellow, or true understandable belief, that's green. All right, so that one was a little confusing. I changed up the word order from your sheet to test you extra well. Um, yeah, so it's a justified true belief. Some of you said justified rational belief. Um, so what I mean by justified is that we have good reasons for believing it, right? So if we just believe something that's true, but we don't have good reasons for believing it, we might call that a true belief, but it's not really knowledge, right? Knowledge requires you to actually have reasons for what you believe. And so knowledge is a justified true belief. It's true beliefs that we have good reasons for. All right, next. We know Christianity is true, by the way, based on that definition. All right, apologetics is about blank. Proving that God exists, red. Defending the faith, blue. Giving reasons for our faith, yellow. Sharing the gospel, green. All right, so defending the faith. You were probably, if you were picking this for really good reasons, maybe it was because you remember that apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which means defense. And that's true, but when we talk about apologetics, the definition that I gave last time was it's about giving reasons for our faith. And the reason why I like that better than defending our faith is because apologetics isn't merely defensive, right? It's not merely about responding to objections or challenges that people have. It is that, but it's also about positively proving the truthfulness of the gospel, right? It's also about offense too, as Sidney just said. Defensive and offensive, either way, it's giving reasons for our faith. William Lane Craig had that good distinction I shared last time. All right, question 10. Apologetics is useful for all of the following except red, increasing the faith believers already have, blue, persuading unbelievers towards the faith they don't have, yellow, making unbelievers born again, or green, looking smart. All right, half and half there. Apologetics is useful for looking smart. What are you guys talking about? People look very smart when they use apologetics, right? Or some people, I don't know. Maybe your only impression is of me and that's not working. So, <laughs> Yellow, uh, apologetics 
is not useful for making unbelievers born again, right? So remember we talked about comprehension, agreement, and trust. Reason comes in between comprehension and agreement, helps us agree with certain truth claims we comprehend, but reason cannot move us from agreement to trust, right? Repentance and faith in Christ is a right response to the gospel, a righteous response, you can even say, to the gospel, but that response is the product of the Holy Spirit doing a supernatural work, right? Making somebody alive, making somebody born again. Reason can never produce repentance and faith in the sense that it can't make somebody born again. Only the Holy Spirit can make someone born again. Reason is part of the process that God uses along with uh, proclaiming the gospel to, uh, to cause somebody to come to agree the gospel and then if it's God's will to save them, then to make them alive and cause them to respond with repentance and faith. But reason itself, giving reasons for the faith, apologetics, that does not make anyone born again. Only the Holy Spirit does that, right? All right, next. All right, question 11. Blank are one of our primary tools in apologetics. Memory versus red, historical facts, blue, scientific evidence is yellow, logical arguments, green. Okay, good job. Logical arguments. All of those things might have their place in a logical argument. The logical arguments are the main form our reasons for the faith. They're the main form that our reasons for the faith uh, come in for us when we do apologetics. All right, question 12. An argument is where multiple propositions logically blank to blank a conclusion. Multiple propositions logically agree to prove a conclusion, logically work together to support a conclusion. Yellow, logically support each other to explain a conclusion. Or green, logically cohere to demonstrate a conclusion. Good job. Yeah, logically work together to support a conclusion. All right, in inductive arguments, it doesn't always prove the conclusion. That's why support's a better word. And they're logically working together, and those statements together infer or entail another statement, namely the conclusion. All right, next. So there's more than one way to argue. These next questions are going to ask you what type of argument you see up here. You ready? We did these last time. Next, there's only a few of these. All dolphins are mammals. All mammals have kidneys. Therefore, all dolphins have kidneys. Is this a deductive argument, red, or an inductive argument, blue? All right, good job. Most of you got that. It's deductive. It's deductive because the size of the statements in the premises are larger than the size of the conclusion, right? The conclusion is more specific. Dolphins have kidneys, where the premises are more generals. All dolphins are mammals, and all mammals have kidneys. In the deductive argument, is the conclusion decisive or indecisive? Decisive, yeah, deductive, decreasing in size, decisive conclusion, right? Good job. It must be true that all dolphins have kidneys if those premises are true. Next. All right. Kip has taken the lead. Number 15. All birds have feathers. All robins are birds. Therefore, robins have feathers. Red, deductive, blue, inductive.
All right, very good. Decreasing in size, and because it's deductive, the conclusion is decisive. Next. Next again. All right, most of our snowstorms come from the north. It's starting to snow. This snowstorm must come from the north. Red, deductive, blue, inductive. Good job. Yet the conclusion is not necessarily true from the premises. In the premises are particular instances which are leading up to a general conclusion, which must be that all snowstorms come from the north, including this one. Right? That's a conclusion that's reached from more particular, more specific premises. Next. All right. Mary and Jim are left-handed and use left-handed scissors. Bill is also left-handed, therefore... Bill uses left-handed scissors. Red, deductive, blue, inductive. You guys are doing a good job. Now don't mess it up here. All right, inductive. So Mary and Jim are particular examples of people who are left-handed. Bill is left-handed, right? But the conclusion that's implied is that all left-handed people use left-handed scissors. That's a very big conclusion. That conclusion was reached from smaller, more specific premises, namely that Mary and Jim are both left-handed. So inductive statements increase in size going towards the conclusion, and the conclusion is indecisive. Next. Bill doesn't necessarily use left-handed scissors. All right, last one like this. It's dangerous to drive on icy streets. The streets are icy now, so it would be dangerous to drive on the streets now. Red, deductive. Blue, inductive. All right, that one was kind of split. It is a deductive argument because the premises are more general, they're more broad than the conclusion, right? It's dangerous to drive on icy streets all the time, right? And right now the streets are icy, so therefore it would be dangerous to drive on the streets. More specific, smaller conclusion reached from general, broader premises. All right, next. Uh, next. What's that? That the streets, it's always dangerous? <laughs> well, the argument might not be sound, right? It might be valid, but not sound. All right, let's just skip this one for time's sake. Sorry. Hope that doesn't mess up your scores too much. Next. I just want to do three of these next type, and then we'll end it there. All right, so something smells fishy with these arguments. This is where we had a little bit more trouble last time. We're going to identify the problem with the argument that you see up here, okay? All right, let's go. So all farmers like burgers... Jethro likes chicken wings, therefore Jethro is not a farmer. Is this valid or invalid? Does this part plus this part equal that part? Good job. Look at that. Perfect score. Invalid. Everyone got it. Very good. Yes, that conclusion does not follow from those parts. Very good. That's very good to see. All right, my mother is Irish. Everyone from Ireland has blonde hair. Therefore, my mother has blonde hair. Valid or invalid? 
Does this part plus this part equal that part? Has nothing to do with whether the parts are true. Good job. Yep. Majority got it again. Again, we're not asking, are these premises true? We're just asking, do these parts add up to the conclusion? That's the only question we're asking when it comes to validity. Next. All right. We'll only do two more. All swans are white. Jane is white. Therefore, Jane is a swan. Valid or invalid? Okay, very good. Look at that. You guys are killing it. Invalid. Next. All right, Pastor Keith is a bird. All birds like to fly. Pastor Keith likes to fly. Is this invalid or unsound? Invalid or unsound? Why are you guys laughing at that? Good job, look at that. Yes, it's unsound. This is a valid argument, right? This part plus this part equals that part. The conclusion follows from the premises, so it's valid. But the problem with this argument is that it's unsound. It's unsound because those parts are not true. Specifically, the first part about Pastor Keith being a bird. The conclusion might happen to be true. Pastor Keith does like to fly, but it is not because he's a bird. All right, one more question, then we'll end it. We'll end it. One question sooner. All right. All athletes hate sports. LeBron James is an athlete. LeBron James hates sports. Invalid or unsound? Which one's wrong here? All right. Good job. Let's end it there on a good note. You got it. It's unsound. Very good. And Kip finishes on top. Unknown takes second place. Good job, Unknown. And Gimli, who I have a feeling was supposed to be Gimli, got third. Good job. All right. Well done, you guys. That was a longer review than we will normally do. But those foundations, which we just had a chance to review and solidify together, are, uh, are very important for us as we move forward. So I'm glad that we had a chance to, uh, to do that exercise. All right. Well, you all passed the rite of passage. Congratulations, you have all made it to the Academy of Apologetics. And it is time now to begin your Jedi training. You can, uh, if you have your page with you, the new handout I gave, we're going to take a look at, at that first. And then we're going to come back and finish the uh, handout that I gave you last time. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at a number of different arguments, a number of different weapons that we can use to defend the faith. Um, but I want to kind of give you a game plan or, or a larger strategy for how we're going to prove Christianity to kind of help you put all of these pieces which we're going to be learning over the next few weeks together, kind of give you a, a, a big picture look at this. Um, I'm going to erase this. Hope you don't mind. I'm going to start putting some different things up here. Alright, so the question for us is how do we prove 
Christianity. How to prove Christianity. Interesting thing, there's more than one way to do it. There's actually a number of different ways to do it. There's a number of different, what we call apologetic methods. A number of different ways of defending the faith or giving reasons for our faith. We're only going to learn one. But I want to briefly touch on the others just so that you kind of have a, an awareness of other ways that Christians will, will prove the truthfulness of what they believe. Right? You don't have to memorize this. This is simply for you to sit back, relax, and, uh, and take in this information. This is just just for your knowledge sake, okay? All right, so one approach, this is not the approach that we're going to use, um, but one approach that Christians will sometimes use is what's called presuppositional apologetics. All right, and the way presuppositional apologetics work, and most of these descriptions I'm going to give you or explanations of these approaches actually come from my Christian philosophy class in seminary. The way presuppositional apologetics works is it says that, that, uh, that the fundamental truth claims of the Christian faith are essentially innate ideas that are known by everybody. It's impossible to live or think in a meaningful way without, without presupposing the God of the Bible, essentially. That it's a necessary presupposition for rational thought. And so what presuppositionalists will do is they'll, they'll show how it's impossible to have uh, for an unbeliever to think um, or for, um, uh, for them to make sense of meaning or any thought or any fact for that matter without the, the Christian God. Um, and, uh, and they'll show how Christian presuppositions are superior from an explanatory standpoint to the presuppositions of unbelievers. Okay, so that's presuppositional apologetics. That's one approach. Another approach is what's called evidential apologetics. Again, you do not need to remember these. Evidential apologetics really focuses on evidence, specifically historical evidence. And this is sometimes um, t- described as a, as a bottom-up approach to apologetics. So they'll look at something like the resurrection. They'll study it from a historical standpoint. They'll come to the conclusion, historically, that the resurrection is the best explanation for what we know historically about what happened after Jesus died. And then just based on that alone, just based on the historical evidence alone, they'll not only come to the conclusion that yes, Jesus rose from the dead, but from that conclusion infer that Jesus really is the Lord that he claimed to be and that God exists as well. So it goes straight to the historical evidence without trying to prove the existence of God first. These are approaches that are, are useful in different ways. It's not the approach that we're going to, to use. So these, this approach doesn't really concern itself with arguments for God's existence. Another approach is what's called cumulative case apologetics. can probably guess what that's about. Looks at a wide range of evidences, historical evidences, scientific evidences, personal evidences, right? Subjective evidences. Looks at a wide range of evidences and it uses certain tests for truth. Are these coherent? Things like that um, to, uh, uh, to demonstrate the, uh, that when you put all these things together, Christianity is either true or most likely to be true. Um, and it also does um, it also will sometimes focus on comparing Christianity to other belief systems. In other words, there's a better cumulative case when you consider all things for Christianity than there is for other, uh, other religions. Um, so these are not the approaches that we're going to be taking. The approach we're going to take is what is sometimes called 
sometimes referred to as classical apologetics or the classical approach. I'm writing it in blue to make it stand out a little bit. All right, and this is where you're going to want to pay more attention if you've been zoning out over the past few minutes. Um, you laugh like that was actually happening. Maybe that, maybe that was happening. <laughs> all right, so the name, classical apologetics, as the name suggests, this is from, I'll, I'll read to you one source on this, as the term classical suggests, quote, this is the dominant approach to apologetics in church history, especially prior to the modern period. Okay, so it's called classical because this is the main one that has been used classically, classically speaking. Um, most of you are probably familiar with the way that theologians will discuss God's revelation in terms of two different types of revelation, right? Sometimes we'll talk about general revelation and special revelation. Who wants to share what general revelation is? General Brandon? Right, okay. Yeah, and that's different from special revelation, which is what? Gotcha, okay. Yeah, and I would say not just saving revelation, too. Yeah, yeah, so general revelation is revelation that is available to all people generally and is made available through general means, most specifically the created world, Okay. Special revelation, on the other hand, is revelation that God has made available through special means. Things like miracles, theophanies, or most commonly, your Bible, right? A work of God, a divinely inspired text, is the, probably one of the more significant forms of special revelation that we have today, aside from maybe the person of Jesus himself, right? So special revelation is revelation made available through special means, supernatural means, you might say, and it's also available only to a special group of people, specifically to those people who have access to the Word, right? Everyone has access to creation. Not everyone has access to a Bible, for example. Why am I talking about this? Uh, well, it's because the classical approach starts with general revelation. It starts with what we can know about God based on how God has revealed himself to us through general means, like the universe that we live in, for example. And starting with general revelation, it comes to a number of conclusions about not only the fact that God must exist, but what this God is like. And using that as kind of like the first step in our approach, then it starts to uh, consider, uh, um, consider evidence for, for special revelation. So obviously the special revelation which we still have with us today, the primary special revelation we have with us today is God's word. And so after considering um, how general revelation, the world we live in, proves God's existence, thinking about the world in a rational way. Um, then it starts to look at what evidence is there for believing that this particular special revelation is from God. This claimed special revelation is, in fact, from God. Um, so unlike the evidential approach, classical apologetics is a two-step approach. It's a two-step approach. Evidential goes straight to the historical evidence for the resurrection or something like that, and from there proves Christianity. Whereas the classical approach starts by proving God's existence. So this is where you can fill in on your sheet. Proofs for God's existence. 
And then after proving God's existence, it considers proofs for God's word. How do we know that the Bible, if God exists, how do we know which God exists? Right? So it starts with theism, belief in God, and moves from there to Christian theism, belief in the Christian God. Um, one of the reasons why this is a better method, I think, than the one-step approach is because believing that God exists or knowing God exists provides a better context for understanding or for considering um, uh, certain uh, potential claims to special revelation. Right? If you believe that God exists, it provides a better context for considering that. So first, prove that God exists. That's the first point there at the top. And second, prove that the true God is the God of the Bible. So you got that down on your handout. Prove that God exists. That's part one, step one. Second step, prove that the true God is the God of the Bible, the God revealed in his word. And so the first step will con consist of proofs for God's existence, and the second step, proofs for God's word, as you've hopefully filled in there. And all of that leads up to the truthfulness of Christianity. You can circle that cross up there and write, Christianity is true. When we come to that conclusion, we can come to that conclusion by walking up those steps. Oops. Okay. Any questions on that? Questions? Pretty simple, right? All right, so the form or variation of the classical approach that we're going to be learning is, uh, is William Lane Craig's approach, or at least it's going to be primarily based on William Lane Craig's approach. You've seen a lot of his videos. I've sent out a lot of his stuff to you and some of the Fight for the Faith Fridays. He is a classical apologist. This is the approach that he follows and uh, many of the arguments that we're using and the approach that we're going to be following too follows his, follows, uh, follows his method. All right, now I just want to say I do think that there's value to other approaches to apologetics. Um, the reason why I would like for us to learn the classical approach is, number one, because I think it's, uh, it's more helpful for evangelism than, uh, than some of the other approaches. And number two, because I think it also accords well with what we find in Scripture. Is there anything in the Bible that would suggest that we can actually know things about God apart from the Bible? Is there anything in the Bible that would suggest that? What do you think? Yeah, there is. Right? Any passages you can think of? Yeah, so, oh, that was one of the ones I had written down, actually. Good job. Psalm 19.1. Actually, we can read through verse 4. Listen to this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, general, to all people generally, and their words to the end of the world. Right? The skies are available for everybody to see. And one of the things I love about this psalm is it talks about how there is no language, right, where this revelation is not made known. There are many people groups in the world, unfortunately, where the Bible has not yet been translated for them. The special revelation that we have in God's word is not available to them yet. But the sky speaks to everybody, right? The world speaks to everybody. It doesn't require a translator. Open up your Bibles really quick to Romans 1. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Bill. Okay. Yeah, Romans 1, I just want you to read this passage really quick in case you're still a little bit skeptical. 
that we can know things about God apart from the Bible or apart from the revelation we have in Scripture. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It's a passage many of you are probably very familiar with. All right, starting in verse 18, Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, the truth is available to them, but they suppress it. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God has revealed himself to them. What has he revealed? His invisible attributes. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. That's what he's revealed. Ever since the creation of the world. That's how long these things have been revealed. How has he revealed these things? Last part of the verse. He's revealed these things in the things that have been made. So through the created world, God has revealed these things to all people. What's the result of this general revelation? What's the result? Paul says, so that all people are without excuse. Perhaps you're asking yourself, well, if God's existence is a, is a truth that's available for all people, that God's revealed to all people, why don't we see more people living that way, right? Verse 21 says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, we want to be gods of our own lives. And in our idolatry, we suppressed the truth. But our sin doesn't make the truth any less available. God has still revealed himself through the word. It doesn't make us any, sorry, revealed himself through the world. And that, our sin doesn't make us um, it doesn't make our failure to recognize the fact any more excusable. Now, interestingly, the scope of general revelation, what God has made known through general means to all people generally, the scope of what God has revealed through the world is perhaps more expansive than you'd anticipate. We can know a lot about God simply by thinking about the universe that he's made in a logical way. We can know that he's an eternal being, an unchangeable, an unchangeable being, an extremely powerful being, a non-physical being, um, a, a timeless being, a, uh, uh, I think I might have already mentioned, spaceless being, uh, that he's a personal being, that he's a moral being, namely the foundation or basis of all moral virtues, and that he's an extremely intelligent being. All those things we can come to conclude simply by thinking about the world in a rational way. There's probably more things that you could tack on to that too, that he's, he's beautiful as well, you could probably add, and glorious and things like that. A lot that we can know about God simply by doing natural theology. That's using natural means, non-supernatural means like the Bible, using natural means like reason and uh, making observations about the natural world, right, as some, as some people have put it. We can actually learn a lot about God through natural theology. It's not something we talk about much, understandably so, because we have the Bible, right, which reveals all of these same things and in, uh, in perhaps, as Aquinas argued, in a much more efficient way for us. <laughs> Right? Yeah, we can conclude a lot of things about God by thinking rationally about the world, but we can also arrive at a lot of those same conclusions by reading it in our Bibles. So what use is general revelation to us? The use is that general revelation can be very, very helpful for unbelievers who share the same world as us. 
right? They live in the same world. They breathe the same air. They live in the exact same universe that God created. They don't share the same special revelation as us yet because they don't recognize it as God's word, but they do share the same general revelation. That is available to them. The Bible says that's there. God has revealed himself in a way that's accessible to them even if they don't believe in the Bible yet. So very useful for us from an apologetic standpoint, general revelation is. All right, I want you to fill this in on your sheet there. Um, there's many different ways that we can know God, God exists simply by reasoning well. Um, there's many different arguments for God's existence. They kind of fall broadly into different categories. I want you to kind of write this down on, on your staircase there. So some arguments prove God from the fact that things exist, namely from the fact that the universe exists. Why does anything exist at all rather than nothing? God's existence is proved from the existence of the universe. You can write that on that first part. These types of arguments, and there's many different types of these arguments, are sometimes called cosmological arguments. Cosmos is another word for the universe. And the fact that the universe exists, as we'll learn next time, is a very powerful proof for the existence of God. You can also prove God exists from design. So God's existence is proved from the evidence of design in creation. You can put that down there, from the evidence of design in creation. These are sometimes called teleological arguments. Uh, the word telos in Greek means goal or end. And so teleological arguments have to do with the fact that things look like they were made for a particular purpose, designed for a particular end. Number three, you can argue for the existence of God from morality. God's existence is proved from the reality of objective morality. We'll talk about what that is in a few weeks. These are called moral arguments for the existence of God. Again, the word is objective morality. There are other types of arguments, too, that we won't talk about. In church history, one proof for God's existence that has been no small uh, source of contention in philosophical circles is what is sometimes referred to as an ontological argument for God's existence. In other words, that the very concept of God and the very nature of existence prove that God exists. Anselm was probably the most famous proponent of this, or at least one of the first proponents of this type of argument, if not the first. And he defined God as a being that which no greater can be conceived. And he said that because it's greater to exist in reality than to exist only in someone's mind, if God exists only in someone's mind, then that means something must be greater something greater than God can be conceived. Um, but that contradicts the definition of God, which means that God must not exist only in our minds, but he must also exist in reality. You don't have to remember that. That's just an example of how the ontological works. That's very similar, if not the same, as Anselm's formulation. Um, we're not going to be learning any of those types of arguments, in part because I'm not super confident that they're useful for evangelism. But, uh, but for what it's worth, my philosophy professor seemed to think that uh, at least a version of Anselm's argument, was one of the strongest philosophical arguments for the existence of God. So there's many arguments um, in each of these different categories. We're only going to learn one form of each of those three categories. We're going to learn one cosmological argument, one argument from the existence of the universe, one argument from design, and one argument from objective morality. So we're only going to learn three, but there's many in each of those different types. I don't know if I agree with my professor, by the way, about the ontological argument being one of the strongest we have. Any questions on those different types of arguments? Any questions? Okay. Again, just kind of giving a lay of the land here. 
Obviously, the Bible says general revelation is real. But when it comes to special revelation, what proof do we have that the Bible specifically is God's word? We're going to talk about this more specifically in a few weeks. But one of the things that we see emphasized in the New Testament as evidence or validation for Christian truth claims are miracles. So God uses miracles to prove that certain people really are his messengers or perhaps to validate the message even itself. The most significant miracle from an apologetic standpoint, I think, is the resurrection. Um, We actually have an interesting example where Paul uses the resurrection as a proof that Jesus really is the Lord of the universe who will judge people on the last day. He says in Acts 17, verse 31, this comes from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. This is when he's in Athens in the Areopagus. He says in verse 31, quote, God has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by what? By raising him from the dead. What is the proof to all people that Jesus will judge the world? It's that God has raised this man from the dead. Now, there's a number of different ways in which the resurrection is significant from an apologetic standpoint. The way that we're going to be using it is probably different than the way Paul used it in Acts 17. One of the ways I think it's very useful for us, the resurrection means a lot of things, obviously. Um, One of the ways I think it's significant is that the resurrection is a vindication of the person of Jesus. If you think about it, Jesus was put to death for what? What was he condemned for? He was condemned for blasphemy, right? He was condemned for making claims. He was uh, condemned for claiming, essentially, to be one with God, one in essence with God, for standing in the place of God, for possessing God's authority, as others have said. That's what Jesus was condemned for. He was put to death for blasphemy. If God reversed that death, that would be one of the single greatest ways that God could show that Jesus, this man, didn't actually deserve to die, right? That he was put to death unlawfully, that he wasn't a blasphemer, that he was who he actually claimed to be, which was God in the flesh, right? And if Jesus really is God, then that means that everything Jesus said is true. Jesus claimed that the Bible is God's word, both the Old Testament, which had been written, and the New Testament, which he anticipated. Therefore, if Jesus is God, then the Bible is God's word, and Christianity is true, right? Now, as, uh, as William Lane Craig's talked about, and a lot of those points follow his argument, um, if not all of them, actually. Again, a lot of this, what we're going to be learning, is, is coming from him. Um, the amazing thing is that uh, Christianity makes um, some of the most essential theological claims of Christianity are historical claims. They're historical claims, which means that they can be historically investigated, just like any other historical claim. And if we can discover historically that Jesus of Nazareth actually did claim to be God and he actually did rise from the dead after being put to death for blasphemy, then we can have uh, proof that Jesus really was who he said he was. So, again, this is one, one approach that falls in the line of classical apologetics. There's other evidences that you could give for the Bible being God's word. You could look at, you know, some people might use the fulfillment of prophecy. You could point to the historicity of the New Testament, the historicity of the Old Testament, things like that. Um, but the resurrections, the, we're at least going to hit that one. We might do one more um, proof for God's word. We'll see. But, uh, but minimally, we'll talk about the resurrection in part because I think that's one of the most useful um, from an evangelistic standpoint and probably one of the more powerful ones that we have. Um, since it's actually surprisingly, um, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's amazing that you can, if you guys saw the video that I sent out, 
for the Public Theology Show. Even using the facts that are accepted by the majority of critical scholars today, you can demonstrate that, that, uh, that the resurrection of Christ is the best historical explanation um, for everything that took place after Jesus' death, or at least for some of the events that took place after Jesus' death. So we'll talk about that more uh, later on. Did you get everything filled in on your sheet? What parts are we missing? So proofs for God's word, Jesus' resurrection. Proofs for God's existence. Hopefully we hit on all of those. Any parts that we're missing still for that? Okay. So how are you going to learn how to prove Christianity? We're going to spend three sessions learning three different arguments for God's existence. An argument from existence, an argument from design, an argument from morality. We're going to spend one session after that talking about the implications of life without God and the role that miracles play in apologetics. Um, and then we're going to spend one session on the resurrection. Maybe we'll do something else as an additional proof for God's words you have in your tool belt. And uh, we'll probably spend one more session after that just talking about conversational tactics, good questions to ask people in evangelism, um, as well as uh, maybe touch on some logical fallacies and, and um, review everything for us. So six sessions after this one, maybe seven, we'll see. That will take you from being an apologetics Padawan to a Jedi Knight. So six sessions, seven sessions, not very many. Any questions on the direction we're going from here? Kind of got a lay of the land. You know the game plan, you know the war strategy, the method we're going to follow for proving Christianity. All right, great. Take two minutes just to quietly look at your notes yourself and try to internalize this as much as possible. The goal is simply to know from memory the two steps, prove that, God, prove that God exists and prove that the true God is the Christian God, and then try to get down those three types of arguments we're going to be learning from existence, from design, from morality, and then Jesus' resurrection. Just try to get that picture in your head. Two minutes. Quiet study.
All right, hopefully you've had a chance to internalize the classical approach that we're going to be using, get those two steps down. You're going to have a chance to solidify that, but I just wanted you to get the basic framework in place now, and you'll solidify that as you move on. You actually learn the three different arguments we're going to be using for God's existence and the argument for the historicity of the resurrection, and uh, that'll help fill in that staircase for you. Now, we're going to talk about one very important apologetic point tonight, and then we'll get into the arguments for God's existence next week. Unfortunately, uh, today, we live in a postmodern world, which means that we cannot start, for some people, we will not be able to start with that first step. We will not be able to start with the existence of God. We'll have to go down to the basement, so to speak, and start with something even more foundational. Start with the existence of truth, asking what is truth, and making sure that they agree that truth actually exists, and that truth is knowable, and that truth is absolute. If they don't agree with those things, we're not even going to be able to get to that first step that God exists, right? It'll be a meaningless claim for us to say that God is true if they don't acknowledge that truth is real, knowable, and absolute, right? So, um, what is truth? Who wants to try and answer that? What is truth? I want the truth, nothing but the truth. <laughs> no one knows what the truth is. Come on, what's the truth? Tell me the truth. Oh, I'll, I'll give that to you later. I'll give that. I'll, I'll give that in a second. I didn't mean to give it away that quickly. It'll come. What is truth, though? How would you define truth? Something you can prove? Okay. Yeah, I mean, there might be some things that are true that we can't necessarily prove, right? Yeah. Bill? What was that? I'm sorry. Fact instead of opinion. Okay. Yeah, so that gets the idea that truth is absolute, right? It's not subjective. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. That's good. Brandon? Uh, I was actually looking for a dictionary answer, but that is true. Yes, Christ is the truth. Yes. All right. What's that? Irrefutable? Okay. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, so here's, here, here's what I'm looking for. Most of this material that I'm going to give you is, is coming from uh, Norman Geisler's Baker Encyclopedia of Apologetics. And Norman Geisler also uh, co-authored a book with Frank Turek called I Don't Not Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And a lot of the uh, con helpful concepts and language I'm going to be sharing here with you come, come from him. So the, the, the view of truth that Christians hold to, ought to hold to at least, is what is sometimes called a correspondence view of truth. Correspondence. What is the correspondence view of truth? It is that truth corresponds to reality. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Um, if I make a statement, Jesus is God, that statement is true if it corresponds to reality. If Jesus is not actually God, that is a false statement. If Jesus is actually God, that is a true statement. 
Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Right. Yeah, then it's a false statement. Yeah, yeah, it certainly would be, huh? So what is the, here's a mnemonic device. I like these. Remember, we want you to be able to remember this yourself, right, without any notes or anything. What is the correct view of truth? The correct view is the correspondence view. Correct correspondence. Got it? Correct view is correspondence. Write that down. That'll help you remember it. Correct correspondence. There are different views of truth out there. This is not the only view. And there are some other views that are popular today, or at least in some circles, I should say. Geyser lists several views. I'm just going to read some of these to you so you can be aware of what else is floating around out there in the dangerous world we live in. Truth is that which coheres with itself, the coherence view. Truth is that which is internally consistent, same thing. Truth is that which works. Truth is that which feels good. Truth is that which provides a comprehensive view of things. Okay, some of these things may be helpful as tests for truth, by the way. For example, internal consistency. Truth must be internally con consistent, but that is not the only requirement for, uh, for a set of claims to actually be true. Right? You can have a set of false claims that are internally consistent. Those claims are not true unless they also correspond to reality. So even though some of those other things I share with you might be helpful as tests, they're insufficient as definitions for truth. How can we prove the correspondence view of truth? Is it possible to prove this? What do you think? Or is this just our one opinion among many? Can we prove it? Brandon? Yeah, anything, uh, anything in mind? Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, so, so something like that might work. It's just that somebody who holds a different view of truth would say it's true, but it's true not because it corresponds to reality. It's true because that's internally consistent with other things that we know, or it's true because that works, or something like that, right? Here's one of the surest ways that you can know something is true. Are you ready? This is not just true of this. Not just true of the truth, it's true in general. Okay, this is the truth. I'm sorry, I'm just, it's too fun to, to just keep using that word over again. The, one of the surest ways you can know something is true is if you can't even deny it without using it. Okay, one of the surest ways you can know something is true is if you can't deny the claim without assuming the claim. Listen to how Geisler puts it. He says, quote, all non-correspondence views of truth imply correspondence, even as they attempt to deny it. The claim, quote, truth does not correspond with what is, end quote, implies that this view corresponds to reality. So then the non-correspondence view cannot express itself without using a correspondence frame of reference. I'll put it an easier way. You can't deny that truth is that which corresponds to reality without making a statement that you expect to correspond to reality. If you're going to claim truth is something other than this, 
then you're, then you're saying that this corresponds to the way truth is, okay? Or actually, what I said might not be the most airtight way to put it. Um, if you're going to say that truth is not that which corresponds to reality, you're implying that that statement itself corresponds to reality. Does that make sense? You can't say this isn't true without implying that the statement actually corresponds to reality. Let me pause there. Any questions on that? Yeah, so if someone says truth is not, is not that which corresponds to reality, the question you would ask them is, does that statement correspond to reality? Make sense? Someone denies that truth is that which corresponds to reality. They're making a statement that they understand to correspond to reality. If you ask them, is that statement true? The implication is that if they think it is, it corresponds to reality, in which case they are implying or assuming the correspondence view of truth. This particular point isn't essential for you to remember, but it might be nice to know. Any other questions on that? I'm going to tell you something that is important to remember in just a second, but this isn't, this isn't at the top of the list. Um... trying to think of one final way to, to put it before I leave this. If you were to make the statement, truth is not that which corresponds to reality, you're saying that statement actually corresponds to reality, right? So it kills itself. It falls on its sword. It's suicidal, philosophically suicidal. As many false claims about truth are, which is what we're going to learn in just a second, and this is important to remember. When you hear false statements about truth, I want you to think about how they kill themselves. They're suicidal from a philosophically suicidal claims to make. Um, and that's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about suicide. Here's something I want you to write down. False statements about truth. False. Here's another fun mnemonic for you. False equals false on its sword. You say, I don't get it. False statements are statements that falls on its sword. False, false. False, false. False statements fall on their sword. The correct view is the correspondence view. Correct correspondence, that view, the view that truth is that which corresponds to reality. And false statement about truth falls on its own sword. Let's look at a few. You've probably heard these. They're written down there on your sheet. And you're going to do something fancy with them in just a second. Okay, if somebody says to you, oh, my dad said not to use red, but I really like red. How about purple? If somebody says to you, there is no truth, you say to them what? You say to them what? 
Is that true? Circle it and draw an arrow back to it. That's what I want you to do on your sheet. That'll help you remember it. Someone says there is no truth. You say that's a false statement about truth. It must fall on its sword. False falls on its sword. Someone says there is no truth. Ask them, is that true? Right? You can write that down too, actually, underneath it. Is that true? How about someone tells you truth can't be known? You say to them what? It is a false statement. And false statements, false on their sword, right? What do you say to them? Truth can't be known. Sorry, the writing's really bad there. How do you know that? Or do you know that, right? Circle known, turn it back on it, right? These statements turn on themselves. They fall on their own sword. Here's a little bit more challenging one. And this is one we hear today. Oh man, where do I make room? Took up too much space with these. Truth is relative. What do you say to that? Let me give you a definition of relative. This comes from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Reliable resource on this stuff. Quote, relativism, roughly put, is the view that truth and falsity, right and wrong, standards of reasoning, and procedures of justification are products of differing conventions and frameworks, frameworks of assessment, and that their authority is confined to the context giving rise to them. In other words, what might be true for you isn't true for me. Truth is relative to person, it's relative to place, it's relative to time. Right? What do you say to that? What's that? By what standard? Okay, that's a good question. How about something that is there any way that this statement falls on its sword, right? If this is a false statement, falls on its sword, how does this fall on its sword? You have a triangle there. There's two different directions this can go for you when you're talking to somebody. Okay, yeah, yeah. How does this fall on its sword, though? Let's circle it back like we did the others. Yeah, Bill? Ah, there we go. Right, is that Relative. Is that truth relative? Now, here's your branch, okay? Here's your decision tree. If they say no, which is probably the most common answer you're going to get, what if they just revealed? Right, exactly. If they say no, then they believe that at least some truths aren't relative. There are some truths that are absolute if nothing else, in the truth that truth is relative, right? So, underneath no, you can write no there, then just say, then absolute truth exists. There are at least some truths that are absolute. What do we mean by truth being absolute? We simply mean that it is true for everyone, everywhere. If they say, that um, if they say that the fact that truth is relative is true for everyone, everywhere, then that is not a relative claim, right? Not a relative claim. Now, here's the thing. Some truths seem like they might be relative, okay? It might be true that I'm hungry, 
and that you're hungry. Okay, just because I'm hungry doesn't mean that it's true that you're hungry. Hunger, my hunger is, you know, relative to my experience um, in that sense. It might be true that I'm facing towards the back door and you're facing towards the baptismal pool. But even those truths are true for everyone everywhere. It is true for everyone everywhere that I'm looking that way, and it's true for everyone everywhere that you're looking that way, right? Even truths that might seem like they're relative to that person are actually absolute. They're true for everyone everywhere. Now, what if they say yes? What if they say yes? Even that statement is relative. What do you say then? They say yes to you. Most will probably say, no, this truth isn't relative, but then you can tell them absolute truth exists. What if, what if they say, yes, it is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if they read to you the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy's definition that I just gave you, and they agree, yes, even this truth is relative. All truth is relative, including that truth. You can tell them what if it's true for me that relativism is false? If all truth is relative, and I believe that relativism is false, is that true? I'm trying to think of something I can write down here for you so you can remember this. What if I say relativism, the view that truth is relative, is false? Here's the problem. And this is coming from the response that I just shared with you. This is coming from uh, CARM, C-A-R-M, Christian Apologetics Research Ministries. They say, quote, If what is true for me is that relativism is false, then is it true that relativism is false? Number one, if they say no, then what is true for me is not actually true. Thus, relativism is false. If they say, yes, it is true that relativism is false, then relativism is false. Do I need to say that again? Somebody says, yes, all truth is relative, including that truth. And I say, well, what if I believe that relativism is false? If relativism is true, then that means my belief that it's false is true, in which case it's false. Right? If they tell me, no, my belief is not true, then relativism is also false because on relativism, my beliefs must be, must be true, right? Including the belief that relativism is wrong. <laughs> so you see, these are undefendable positions. False statements about truth falls on its sword, okay? Someone says, there is no truth. You ask them, is that true? 
Someone says, truth is not knowable. You ask them, how do you know that? Do you know that? Somebody says, truth is relative. You ask them, is that truth relative? If they say no, then at least some absolute truths exist. If they say yes, even that truth is relative, then you say, well, what happens if I don't believe relativism is true? If relativism is true, then that means that statement's true. But if you're going to tell me it's false, then relativism can't be true either. Because my relative truth, you're telling me isn't true. <laughs> All right, I'm going to give you, I was going to do a practice exercise because we're three minutes over time. I just want to give you a couple minutes to at least try to memorize this yourself. And we'll work on it next time. We'll practice it next time. But just take a couple minutes in silence while you're here before you go home and forget about this to get into your head the correct view of truth. Correct is the correspondence view. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. And think about how false statements about truth, false falls on its sword. False falls on its sword. Remember your little circle back pictures. Think about how to respond to these statements. You might hear these. Yeah, Grandma? Um, on the first point, if you have truth is that which corresponds to reality, the second one, what was that? Truth is blank and blank. What was that supposed to be? Uh, probably it's supposed to be truth is knowable. Yeah. You can add on to that real, too. That's an important one today. It's real, knowable, and absolute. Just take a couple minutes to internalize this. Any other questions, actually, before you try and internalize it? Any questions? By the way, this is a good time for you to press back to raise objections or challenges to the arguments that we're making here. Maybe objections that you might anticipate hearing from other people. Yeah, Kenny? Um, yeah, yeah, if someone were to ask what reality is, you would just say, you know, the, uh, the, the actual state of affairs, right? The way things actually are. Yeah, yeah, probably maybe just, you know, would define that for them. Yeah, good question, though. For the live stream, the question was, you know, what if someone says, what's reality? All right. One minute. I was talking during the first minute, so sorry about that. <laughs> I right, hope you've had a chance to look at it a little bit. Next time, we'll practice it before moving on to arguments for God's existence. I want to ask you this question in closing. If somebody denies that truth is real, or that truth is knowable, or that truth is absolute, how far is the Christian message going to get with them? Not far, right? If you tell them the Bible is God's word, and Jesus is God, and he died for your sins, and you're saved by repenting and believing, but they don't believe that truth is real in the first place, or they don't believe that truth can even be known, or they don't believe that truth is absolute, that truth is really just relative to person, place, and time, that message is going to have 
very little impact on them, right? So today, not for everybody, but for some people you talk with, this is the basement that you're going to have to deal with before you even get to the first step of the stair, which is God's existence. You're going to have to start with the fact that truth exists, can be known, and is absolute, right? All right, any final questions before we close? Gracious, right? Yeah, that's a good reminder, Will. Right. Yeah, important to be faithful in prayer, huh? Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, have to be patient and gentle, yeah, and gracious, and uh, and everything that we say has to be said in love, right? Yeah, yeah, just like he is with us. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Very sad, huh? Very sad. Yeah. Yeah, not good. Yep. Yeah, terrifying thought, huh? I'm sorry, I know you guys have to go. Do you have one more question, Tim? You had a question before? No, I'll just follow up with you later. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, take some time over the next few days just to look at your notes, review the images, try and kind of refresh them in your head. If you have any questions, you can come up and talk with me after. But great job tonight. Uh, everybody, let's, let's, uh, ask, let's just pray really quickly before we close. Lord, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for enabling us uh, to understand uh, things about you just by thinking about the world that you've created. We're so thankful for your general revelation and for your special revelation. Help us, Father, to, to be able to know how we can use the revelation that you provided to the world to help the world come to know you better and even to, even to be more confident in, uh, in the truth that we already believe ourselves. It's in your name we pray. Amen.